Welcome to the City Church Podcast. We hope that you will be abundantly blessed by this message. If you would like to find out more about the city, please log on to our website, www.thecity.sg. Awesome. It's so glad to be, I'm so glad to be with you on a Sunday morning. I am excited uh, to kick off week four of, uh, of our sermon series. Come on, I've, this is my first time doing four in a row. And so, I hope you are still a fan of me at this point of time. Uh, I, I have a lot of ground to cover, but I, I chanced upon something really funny this week, and I want to read this to you. I do have a lot of ground to cover, so prepare your ears, your minds, and whatever have you. Okay, and this is uh, a response to a, a comment uh, and, uh, from different uh, countries and nationalities, and it's response to um, the, this statement, Mommy, I'm going out. The Americans respond, all right, see you. The Spanish, adios. The French, au revoir. Singaporeans, go where? With who? Why are we going out? One day also cannot stay home, is it? Come back late, then you sleep outside. This one hotel for you, is it? With parents, can go out, cannot go out. Friends call very fast, right? I love this. This is my... Childhood, basically. <laughs> and this is the efficiency of the Singaporean language, okay? okay? This responds to the question, how difficult is this? The British. This is extremely difficult. It involves so many complex layers and it's taking up a lot of my time. The Chinese, 这是一份非常难的任务. The Singaporeans, jialat. Efficient men, Singaporeans. Oh, beautiful. <laughs> huh? Oh, not, not, not that talented, anyway. All right, how many of you are ready for God's Word this morning? Yeah? A lot of ground to cover. Let's, let's, let's just dive right in. Are you ready? Are you ready? Come on. Right. Lord, we thank you for the privilege of gathering together as a community. Lord, we thank you for that great promise in the scriptures that tells us when two or three are gathered in your name that you are here with us. Lord, we thank you for your ever-present presence. Lord, we thank you for your Holy Spirit that's in this room right now. And God, we ask, even as we learn about you through the scriptures, God, that you will meet us here in this moment. Lord, we ask that we will not leave here simply with head knowledge or impressed by the points that will be brought up, but we will leave here being impressed by your very Spirit. So God, we ask, encounter us today. Touch us in a brand new way. Fill us with your Holy Spirit once again. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, okay. How many of you like reading the Bible? Sure you're not lying? No. Um, you know, I, I struggled with Bible reading for, for many years. And it's just tough, you know. I'm, I've always been a, more of a picture, picture guy than a words on pages guy, you know. Um, remember when I first found out there was a comic version of the Bible, I, I was like, oh, I can fulfill my everyday scripture reading by reading comics. And beautiful, you know. And so I struggled reading Bible for many years, you know. And, um, and I, I, I just, you know... Um, along the way, found different things that intrigued me about the Bible that really stirred up a new faith, a new hunger, a new love for the Word of God. And one of the things I really like about reading the Bible is that you get to see God's creativity in the pages. You know, there are 
beautiful parallels and beautiful stories in Scripture. Like, one of my favorite verses is this Scripture that goes, um, through the disobedience of one man, many were made sinners. So also through the obedience of one man, the many will be made righteous. That's beautiful. That's like, whoa, swirly language. Oh, that's a... Uh, just me? I, I love it. Stuff like, you know, uh, Edwin's role before the fall was, was a gardener. And the resurrected Christ, the first time someone saw him, they mistook him as a gardener. He was found in the garden, from a garden to a garden. Beautiful. No? It's poetry. It's so beautiful. You know, like, the first person that touched Jesus when he came into uh, the world was the Virgin Mary. And the first person that touched Jesus when he was resurrected was Mary Magdalene sinner, the one who was oppressed with demons, saying to us that this is the age of grace, that the age of law is past, but now it is the age of grace. Beautiful, right? Mary, Mary. Come on. I, it's going to go down you from here. If you, if you. It's, it's so beautiful, right? And, and one of the, the little uh, parallels that I found in scripture uh, that has really spoken to me, this is the story of uh, the Tower of Babel and uh, the day of Pentecost. And, and I want to show you the, the link between two. I know it's, it's, it's a bit odd talking about Babel, but we are on this series called Build This City. And so I've been really pondering and looking into several passages of Scripture in the Bible that has the word built in it, like Nehemiah's uh, building the walls of Jerusalem. But Babel is one of the stories that I've been learning a lot from. So let's have that Scripture up real quick. In Genesis 11, and so we're, we're all familiar with the the, the story, yes? All right. Genesis 11 says, Now the whole world had one language. I highlighted it for a reason. Just pay attention. One language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a place in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Next slide. It says, But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. This is the word that's come, that, comes up, that came up from the Lord. Because they are of one people, the same language, they are one accord, nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. That's, that's a staggering line. Come on. Yes. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth and they stopped building the city. That is why it's called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of the world. Fast forward, let's look at passage from uh, Acts chapter 2. Let's have that up. Familiar story, yes? It says this, When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one accord. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And they appeared to them, tongues as of fire distributing themselves and they rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. In some translations, it says, they begin to speak the language of the Holy Spirit. So let's track back. Babel. One people, one language, their purpose to do a work, and the Lord said that nothing will be impossible for them. Therefore, He came and He confused the language and they stopped building the city. Fast forward to the day of Pentecost. One people, one accord, they were gathered to, together. The word accord is not Honda Accord. It's <laughs> Andre, you don't have time. You don't have time. <laughs> one accord, they were together, united as one people. And then the language of the Holy Spirit came and united them in the Spirit. 
my suggestion to you is that that observation or that 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 proclamation from the Lord that nothing would be impossible for them stands true today because of the day of Pentecost. That when we are one people, when we are united in the same language, the language of the Holy Spirit, nothing we purpose to do will be impossible, will be withheld from us. And that's our observation from uh, the, the early church, the early, possible, uh, the early apostles. Indeed, nothing was impossible for them. You know, they experienced countless setbacks, deaths of uh, key leaders, severe persecution, lots and lots of opposition, yet they stood firm, resolute in the faith. Yet they stood firm in preaching and proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. How many of you know that the move of God that started in Acts chapter 2 did not pause at any moment in history, but it's still continuing today? We are the very proof and evidence that that move of God didn't stop. Here's, here's what I want to propose to you as an observation. The distinction between Babel and the day of Pentecost is this. In Babel, man was independent of God. They were trying to make a name for themselves. That's what the Bible says. And that attempt was short-lived. It didn't last. In the book of Acts, the people were dependent on the Holy Spirit. The name of God was glorified through men. We see that in Peter's sermon. He says this, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And that move of God lasted till today. Here's what I want to say to us as a people. Whatever we are building in life, in ministry, in church, if we desire to see longevity in it, it has to be built with and by the Holy Spirit. Any attempt to build based on personal insight, knowledge, strategies, anything that's built void of the Spirit of God will be a short-lived endeavor. When we say build this city, we're not saying that we, are, we, want, we want to build it based on our personal know-how, strategies, or plans. When we make that profession, like we are here to build this city, we are here to build it alongside God. The Bible says is that Jesus says that I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I don't think that's an invitation for us to be passive in the building process, but it's an invitation for us to co-labor with him. All through the scriptures, that's the beautiful story of uh, the relation, our relationship with Jesus. That It's all about co-laboring. It's all about coming together. Amen? Making sense to you. Paul in 1 Corinthians tells us that we ought to build our lives upon God as our foundation. He goes on to say that we can either build our lives on wood, hay, and stubble, or go and precious stones, speaking of Christ. And in the last day, everything will be tested by fire, and that which is of God shall remain. The Holy Spirit is not a denominational preference. It's not an add-on to what we do. It is central and core to all we do here. And I like to propose to, to all we do in life. You're making sense. The Holy Spirit is that which makes all things possible. It's what we intentionally give honor to in all that we do in life. That's why we start off every service with praying prayers like, have your way, Holy Spirit. Come and rule and reign, Holy Spirit. It's not an add-on to what we do here, but He is our most honored guest. You know, I, I love that we have guests here and we try our best to make things really comfortable for our guests. We have different things and we have our new ministries coming up to help us better take care of our guests. But the most honored guest, treasured guest that we'll ever have in the church is the Holy Spirit. Making sense. The observation is this, you know, for hundreds of years, churches all around the world have gathered around sermons, doctrines, 
theologies, programs. But the children of Israel, they camped and gathered around the presence of God, around the Holy Spirit. I think we need to rediscover all wonder, value, and worth for the Spirit of God. Amen. So this is my sermon title for today. Build this city, a Spirit-filled church. Say that, a Spirit-filled church. Now the word Spirit-filled brings about certain connotations. It might mean to you that the pastor up front doesn't wear a suit, he wears jeans. People are free to roll around the ground. It might mean to you that there is no fixed service program. It might mean to you that worship might go really long. And it brings about certain connotations, like Spirit-filled equals to these things. But I'd like to suggest to you something. That there's no such thing as a Christian who is not filled with the Spirit. There's no such thing as a Christian who is not filled with the Holy Spirit. Being Spirit-filled is not a matter of theological persuasion, comfort, or inclinations. Being filled with the Spirit is to be Christian. To be Christian is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I'd like to give you some evidence. Ephesians chapter 1. Let's have that up. It says this, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believe in Him, was sealed with the promise, Holy Spirit. It came with the salvation. Holy Spirit did. And in Acts chapter 13, I'd like to have that scripture up. It says this, And the disciples were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. They were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. The infilling of the Holy Spirit is not a one-time event, but it's meant to be a continuous, ongoing event. You're all familiar with this passage, I hope. It says this in the Bible that, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. That word filled, if you look at it in its original text, it means to be continually filled. Just like salvation isn't a one-time event, it's a continuous work and process. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So is the Holy Spirit. I know I'm preaching to the choir here. A bunch of you are charismaniacs and, and you know, tongue-speaking, demon-casting-out people. But, but one of the things I would like, I like to do is I like to get us all on the same page. You know, I, I recognize that a bunch of us here have grown up in charismatic environments. Some of us may have grown up in environments where the Holy Spirit is not often talked about. Or some of us have recently come to Christ. And I want to bring us all on the same page and wet your appetite. Come on. In the Old Testament, the sign of God's favor was the Holy Spirit. When a person was favored of God and when a person was, uh, was bound to a divine assignment, a mandate, he was given the Holy Spirit as a sign of God's favor and empowerment. One of the first declarations Jesus made when he came into the planet was that the favorable of year of the Lord was upon us. Now favor is no longer limited to select individuals, but all of us, because of the cross of Jesus, are favored of God. What's the implication? It means that the Holy Spirit is no longer limited to select individuals, no, more, no longer limited to clergymen, but now all of us, because we are highly favored of God, have access, have opportunity to know the Holy Spirit. Am I making sense? <coughs> Beautiful. Let's look at John chapter 14. Are you tracking with me? Yes, John chapter 14. It says this, If you love me, keep my commandments, and I'll ask the Father, and He'll give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The Spirit of Truth. This is talking about the Holy Spirit. Next slide. The world cannot accept Him because it neither sees Him nor knows Him, but you know Him. For He lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you before long. 
the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me because I live. You also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. It's beautiful. We, we all know this, that the Holy Spirit lives in all of us. Now, I, I, I am a, a student of the Bible. I try my best to um, uh, read a bunch. I try my best to be informed. Um, you know, but one of the things I realized um, really early on in my study of the Word and theology, you know, I gave myself uh, for a few years to really, really dive into uh, theological stuff. You know, and one of the things I realized is that at the end of the day, at the end of all this, I am pretty sure that I will have some stuff wrong. Not, not intentionally, not with the means to deceive you, but I am pretty sure that I wouldn't have the most accurate or the most perfect theology. And it's true, you know, because we, we know in part. We, we don't know everything. And my understanding is limited. My experience is limited. I do not have access to all the knowledge that is out there. Therefore, you know, my theology might... May, it may not be flawed, but it, may, it definitely isn't complete. And a phrase that I've, I've come to love uh, these days is this phrase that goes, Jesus is perfect theology. He's perfect theology. That doesn't mean that Jesus uh, was filled with just knowledge and, and know-how. But it meant this, that Jesus, having known all things, knowing the Father, lived a perfect life that measured up to all that he knew. Jesus was the perfect representation of the Father on the planet. You're making sense. I'd like to suggest to you today that the Holy Spirit is the perfect representation of the God. He is the perfect representation. The word another is really, really interesting. Uh, let's have that scripture up. It says another. Now the word another, no, um, there are two words for another in the in the Bible in the original text. Uh, one could mean, um, here's a chair, you're all sitting on this chair, but uh, I have like a high stool there, and they are the chairs, they are both chairs, and so this is another chair, right? So to put it simply, same, same, but different, okay? The word another use here would mean PD is sitting on this chair, and Amy is sitting on this chair. She's sitting on another chair. They are exactly identical, not different. And so the word used to describe the Holy Spirit, another advocate, it doesn't mean a different person or a subset of the person, but it means the exact, exact replica. Same, one and the same. You know, we've tried to explain the Holy Spirit in different ways. You know, maybe you've grown up and they told you that, oh, the Godhead is like an egg. You know, you have the egg shell, the egg white, and the egg yolk. Or... Or, you know, God is like water, water vapor, water and ice. Though these are, you know, I, I would admit really good attempts to explain the Trinity, but the Trinity is far more complex than that. Far more complex than that. And, and we can't possibly explain God using earthly things or fully capture the essence of who God is through these things. It's not the egg white and the egg yolk, but they're one and the same. Exactly the same as the Holy Spirit. And so this Holy Spirit theology 101, that the Holy Spirit is God. He is God. Alright? You might not have known this all the time, but He is God. Second thing I would like to suggest to you, or 
not suggest, inform you. The Holy Spirit is a person. He is a person. As much as I like it when preachers infuse Star Wars doctrine into biblical doctrine, the Holy Spirit is not a force. He's not the force. You don't look at Star Wars and like, oh, the force, that's representative, representing the Holy Spirit. No, he's not that. He's not a power that pushes people down. He's not a force. He is a person. And by person, you know, that would imply that he has emotions, he has a will, and he, by extension, longs to be known, not just utilized. Longs to be known. That's making sense. Most of us experience the Holy Spirit by feeling goosebumps, heat, uncontrollable tears, or a sense of peace. That's all biblical. But the Bible says, the Bible says this, that our heart and flesh shall cry out to the living God. It is not common for a person to be in the presence of Almighty God and not have any physical reaction. It's all normal. It's all okay. Shake, rattle, roll. Do, do whatever you will. You're spirit-filled. Wear jeans. Something ought to happen when God shows up. Amen? Something always happens when God shows up. But I'd like to present an analogy. Imagine if I were to go to the park later and I will sit on a park bench next to an individual. And I sit next to him and the park bench is really tight and I'm a bigger person and so we are close. So we are close and I can smell the person, okay? I can probably feel the person's breath to some degree. I can experience the person in that regard, right? I'm sitting close, maybe we are touching shoulder to shoulders, I can feel him, right? But would it be accurate to say that I am encountering the person or knowing the person? No, right? To know a person requires conversation, it requires dialogue, it requires in the mercy, same for the Holy Spirit. You know, it is not sufficient for us to just experience Him. Most of us get satisfied with just the goosebumps and the heat. Not knowing that He is a person that longs to be known. Your expectation will set up what you experience. If your expectation of the person of the Holy Spirit is just goosebumps and heat, that, that's all you're going to get. But if you recognize that He is a person that can be known, so much more in store for you. Amen? Holy Spirit is a person. Is a person. The Bible says this, that the Holy Spirit was given to us without measure. Without measure. The original text would imply without withholding. Here's how I view the Holy Spirit. No, I don't view the Holy Spirit as a force or as water levels. The Holy Spirit is a person and no person shows up in a room in partiality. Think about it this way, you know, like PD comes to a meeting, he, half of him shows up. More PD, more PD, and then the legs, you know. That's how we often view the Holy Spirit. We, we think of him as partiality, but the Bible says this, that he is given to us without measure, without withholding. No person shows up in partiality. That would mean that any deficiency in the equation is on our end, not his. When we pray more Holy Spirit, it's not more God, show up more, but it's a plea to our senses, our very person, to become more aware of the God who is here and fully here. Sometimes our prayers imply that we are more merciful than He is. Or desire more for Him to show up than He does. Sometimes you approach Christian discipline as a means to twist God's arm to do something. 
like I fast and I put myself through a very horrible experience and by that, you no know, God will take pity on me and I twist God's arm into doing something. I'd like to suggest to you that the purpose of all Christian discipline is for self-refinement and not the appeasement of God. We have to change our mentality and our approach towards Christian discipline. He is willing. Question is, are you? You with me? You know, another thing I've realized in my marriage, I know I talk about my marriage often, but this is one thing that's going really well for me, and so I like to talk about it. So deal with it. Um, yeah. Get some feedback. People are like, you, don't, you talk about marriage a lot. I know, I love my wife. Um, me and Amy, we, we uh, have been, uh, we were dating for seven years and married for five, five months? Six months. Uh, time flies when you're having so much fun. You can never trap me. I'm a preacher. Uh, but one of the things we realized really early on is, you know, we were both really passionate about ministry, about church, about people. But one of the things we realized is that we were, uh, you know, when we went out on dates, we were talking about people, about church all the time. And, and, but, you know, those are topics and things that, stuff that interests us, that matters to us. But, you know, it wouldn't be safe to say that we were connecting heart to heart because we were just talking about issues. But, these issues, though they mattered to us, weren't really the hard stuff. And so one of the things we made as a commitment really on, early on in our relationship was to, uh, on dates especially, you know, we would set this time aside, protect it, just so that we can connect and uh, be intimate in that regard, you know, to talk about the hard stuff. So we, we, we try our best and be purposeful with not talking about church and church problems, you know, because you all know that you all got problems. And <laughs> We like to talk about that. <laughs> um, and pray, you know. It's not a gossipy kind. It's like, oh. Um, and so I, I really had to protect that time with her so that we can connect. One of the struggles I have as a minister is um, protecting my time with God. You know, I probably read the Bible more than most of you, you know. But uh, my Bible reading has several, you know, purposes to it. You know, I read the Bible uh, often to prepare for my sermons. But if all I do in my reading the Bible, in my prayer, in my worship, is all for my job or for my profession, then that isn't a real relationship. Relationship demands for me to protect that time, to set, set aside time for me to just read the Bible, just to know God, just to encounter Him, just to experience Him. One of the, the, main, the, the big temptations is to be intimate for a profession to be intimate with the Bible, to be intimate with God, just so that I can be good at my job. Maybe you're not in ministry, but, but what, what is the Holy Spirit to, to you? Is He a add-on? Is He a last-ditch effort? Is He something that you engage when there's a church gathering? Or is He a person that you are setting aside time purposefully with intention, getting to know? Is the Holy Spirit a lifeline? Or is he someone that you're in relationship with? I'm making sense. The number one book that changed my life till today, number one book, is a book by an author named Benny Hinn, and it's the book, Good Morning, Holy Spirit. And it just taught me a really simple principle, though, to wake up in the morning and to say the words, Good Morning, Holy Spirit, turning my affections, my devotions, my gaze to the Holy Spirit every morning. Simple thing. Recognizing that he is a person that longs to be known. Am I making sense? 
Jesus has tremendous honor for the Holy Spirit and calls us to treat the Holy Spirit with great honor as well. Let's look at Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3, it says this, Surely I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the sons of men and whatever blasphemies they may utter. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation. In my study of scriptures, I've never seen Jesus made that comment about any other sin except this. He who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit shall be condemned. I know that's a really scary scripture. But I'd like to suggest to you this, that you would be passionate, uh, you would be really uh, passionate about guarding something to which you value greatly. Making sense? Yes. If you value something greatly, you'll be really passionate about making sure that thing is well protected and guarded. If you value that. Jesus values the Holy Spirit so greatly that he makes that kind of profession. Who has he given to you and me? The Holy Spirit. That which he so values greatly, he has given freely to you and me. What does this say about his thoughts towards you and me? He values us. You know, I've been driving on the road for five years now, and uh, nothing to boast about, of course. Automatic license. Uh, You will honor me despite my failings and uh, just need to pass real quick. Um, and, um, and so, you know, I've been driving for five years now and uh, my, my, my dad, um, you know, he, he's a self-made man, but he, he, he has a really nice car that I haven't been able to drive uh, because, you know, you need five years of driving experience in order to get on insurance and all that stuff. And, uh, you know, a month from now, you know, I would qualify. So it's beautiful. Um, so my, my dad really loves this car. He really, really loves the car, you know, because he... He has worked really hard for, for it, you know, and he so values the, the car. Um, and he's going to let me drive it, um, which is, you know, cool. Uh, <laughs> but he, the only reason I'm able to drive it is because, one, um, he semi-trusts in my ability. Five years on the road means that I'm a okay, proficient driver. You know, no accidents yet. Uh, no accidents ever. Um, <laughs> So he trusts my ability, yes. But there's also another aspect. Like, he's not going to let all your drive, no matter how proficient you are, right? He's going to let me drive because I'm his son and he values me, right? What is entrusted to you can be directly linked to a person's confidence in your ability as well as the value he has for you. The Holy Spirit, that which God values so greatly, is given freely to you and me because he trusts you. He trusts you. But not only that, he values you. Am I making sense? <coughs> you know how much a person is valued and trusted by what they are given. This is the third point about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit this is a seal of God's approval over you and me. Before Jesus did any ministry, Jesus was said of the Father that he was his beloved son. In Luke 3, chapter 21, uh, Luke 3, verse 21 to 22. This was said of the son that you are my dearly loved son and you bring me great joy. I love this translation. You bring me great joy. And this was at a point of Jesus' life where he, before he even did any ministry on the earth, before he did the stuff, the father said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Jesus never had to minister to earn the approval of the father. He ministered from the approval of the father. 
I'd like to show, show you uh, and take you on a journey. In the Old Testament, you will never find the mention of the words Holy Spirit. If you read the Bible long enough, you will recognize that. You will find mentions of uh, the Spirit of the Lord or the glory of God. I'd like to propose to you that they are one and the same. We don't have a counter Old Testament counterpart of the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, you'll find mentions, Spirit of the Lord, the glory of God. And the word glory is really interesting. We're all familiar with it. And it's usually paired with this word, Shekinah. Okay? Shekinah is a, is a word that we know really, uh, have, are really familiar with. You know, we have songs written about it, Shekinah glory. And the word Shekinah comes from the word Shekan, meaning to dwell, reside, to abide. And Shekinah glory would loosely translates to the glory that dwells, resides, and abides. I'd like to take us on a journey of seeing the glory of God all through the Old Testament into the New and to today. The glory of God, which is the Spirit of the Lord, which is His very Spirit. First started in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, in the Garden of Eden. Okay, we have that little cute tree. The triangle one is the bad one. It says this. Circle. Circle is complete. Uh, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3, 23. We all know that the glory of God was present in the Garden of Eden. The next progression, the tabernacle of Moses. It says, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And we all know that God desired to reside, to be with men. And he asked for a tabernacle. It's very specific measurements, instructions, and Moses built a tabernacle and the glory of God came and filled that tabernacle. The next progression is the Temple of Solomon. It says in Second Chronicles, and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the temple of God. David had a desire, David had a desire Solomon fulfilled it to build Solomon's temple. Next progression, you know, Jesus. It says this about Jesus, the word became flesh and made his dwelling. The word dwelling is the word tabernacle. He made his tabernacle among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son. It's the very embodiment of his glory. The next progression, I believe it comes to you and me. It says in John chapter 2, he will destroy the temple and raise it again in three days. How many of you know that Jesus did not physically go out of the grave and physically build a temple? What is he saying in that, in that passage of scripture? He will raise up temples of the Holy Spirit. That's what the Bible calls you and me. Temples of the Holy Spirit. Now I'd like to give you a bit of information on the different things that I brought up. God of Eden, we're familiar, but that tabernacle of Moses, by today's evaluation, it is said that the tabernacle of Moses will cost some 16 billion US dollars to build. 16 billion US dollars to build. The tabernacle of Moses. The Temple of Solomon, its next progression, by today's estimate, it would cost some 60 billion US dollars to build. Now, the Sol- now Solomon's Temple was about uh, 180,000 square feet. That would mean that per square feet is 30 million US dollars. Excellence. Expensive. Excellence. Though impressive, though these two buildings were impressive, it was not the ultimate desire of God. All through history, the glory of God has dwelt in temples, has has dwelt in tabernacles, has dwelt in different places. But it was God's ultimate desire for His glory, for His Spirit to dwell in you. 
the ultimate price was paid for the ultimate temple, you and me. What I'd like to suggest to you is this, that you, to God, are worth more than a $16 billion tabernacle, than a $60 billion temple. You were worth even the life of Christ purchased for you on Calvary so that you can experience the fullness of his kingdom, this great gift of salvation and the Holy Spirit. That's the gospel. You are worth so much to God. And he proves that by giving you his Holy Spirit. In closing, I'd like to share with you two passages of scripture regarding honoring the Holy Spirit. The Bible gives us instructions on how we ought to approach the Holy Spirit. Let's have those two scriptures up. It says this in the Bible in Ephesians. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. In 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 19, it says, do not quench the Holy Spirit. In closing, I would like to talk about those two words, grief and quench. Now the word grief, in its original language, it means deep sorrow, distress, and in some translations, the pain that's associated with childbirth. Deep pain. But it also means to violate. It describes the pain the heart of the Holy Spirit can feel because of something we would do or allow in our lives. It's character-centered. We need to remember that He's not just a spirit. He's not just the spirit, but He is the Holy Spirit. We are not unfamiliar with the word holiness, and holiness for most people will mean a right way of living to avoid the consequence of hell. However, what, this is what I believe God is calling us and summoning us to ascend to as a community, and that is to pursue holiness because it brings honor to the Holy Spirit whom you are hosting. As a young man, you know, I obeyed my parents out of fear of consequence, out of fear of being spanked. As a grown man today, my parents probably could still spank me. Uh, but today, you know, with much understanding and maturity, I obey my parents. I listen to them because I know their heart and I do not want to pain nor grieve them. That is the kind of holiness we are called to pursue and where God is summoning us to as a people. Holiness that is not pursued out of fear, but holiness that is pursued out of love, out of honor for the very spirit that rests upon you, that is in you. That making sense? John chapter 1, verse 32. Let's look at this passage. It's the account of uh, the baptism of Jesus, and we read that earlier, but this is John's account. It says this, and John bore witness saying, I saw the spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained on him. Now, I might have shared this with you before. It says this, that the Holy Spirit came down, descended on Jesus like a dove and rested on him. If you had a dove on your shoulder and you didn't want the dove to fly off, how would you walk? You walk really carefully, yes? You would not make any sudden movements. You walk really carefully. I'd like to extend that thought further. That every step you take, if you don't want the dove to fly off, is with the dove in mind. You take one step and you consider, is the dove still there? Is he, is he going to fly away? Take another step and it's with every step is with the dove in mind because you do not want him to fly away. That's how we are called to walk with the Holy Spirit. Giving honor to him who rests in us, who is upon us. We live holy lives because of who we are hosting. Is that making sense? Let's look at this passage of scripture in Ezekiel verse 36. 
Ezekiel 30, verse 36. This Ezekiel prophesying about New Testament reality. He says, I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I'll take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Pay attention to that. It says that I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. This assignment of living a holy life is really daunting, it's really scary, and it's somewhat unattainable. You know, we read in scriptures that Jesus almost puts uh, the Old Testament cover, uh, requirements on steroids. He demands so much more in the New Testament. It seems so daunting and so hard to live out. But it says this in that passage of scripture, that the Holy Spirit that is within you will cause you to walk in His statutes and you will keep his judgments and do them. It does not say that if you don't walk in his statutes and keep his judgments, he will take his Holy Spirit away from you. It does not say, if you keep my judgments and walk in my statutes, I will give to you my Holy Spirit as a reward. Holy Spirit is a gift, freely given. This is my observation. In the Old Testament, God required perfect buildings to dwell in really specific measurements, requirements. He required perfection. In the New Testament, He comes and dwells in imperfect, flawed people who are lacking, who are still works in progress. This says to me that the God who is in me is remodeling me, even as He lives in me. I'll cause my spirit within you to enable you to live a lifestyle of holiness. You don't have to be perfect altogether before you can get my spirit. But I'm going to put my spirit in you so that you can get to that place. Because no matter how great you think you are, you by, can by no means attain this level of holiness and perfection. It can only be done so by the grace and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Here's the great truth. I want you to listen to me. God can use you while He changes you. God can use you while He changes you. The Bible says this, that where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. In its original phrasing, it does not read like that. It actually reads this way. Where the Lord is Spirit, there is freedom. Where the Spirit is Lord, there is freedom. I'm sorry. Where the Spirit is Lord, there is freedom. When you allow Him to rule and reign in your life, there comes freedom. There comes liberty. Making sense. Before I run out of time, let's look at the last, the next word, quench. It says, do not quench the Holy Spirit. I'd like to point us to the first instance where the Holy Spirit was mentioned in the Bible, and it's from the Old Testament. In Exodus chapter 31, let's read this together. It says this, Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with wisdom, with understanding, with knowledge, and with all kinds of skills, to make artistic designs for work in gold, silver, and bronze, to cut and set stones, to work in wood, and to engage in all kinds of crafts. Now that doesn't seem very Holy Spirit activity to you and me. Holy Spirit looks like people's bodies on the floor. It looks like the signs and wonders, miracle stuff. But the first time the Holy Spirit showed up on the scene where a person was filled with the Holy Spirit. It was for the purpose of empowering.
empowering them to do their job. The word quench seems to suggest to suppress, to limit. And I believe we often have a limited understanding and expectation of the Holy Spirit's ability to empower us. We think traditional ministry stuff all the time. But in this case, the Spirit empowered Bezalel to excel at his job. You know, I had the opportunity to be part of a medical healing conference, and this was a conference filled with medical professionals, doctors who believed in the power of the Holy Spirit and were coming together to share stories, testimonies of the goodness of God in the medical field. And I heard a testimony of a gynecologist who came and shared how there are typically seven complications that can occur during a pregnancy. And she got real frustrated at seeing the complications coming up time and time again. And then she, one day out of frustration, prayed to God and said, God, you, you need to tell me what I can do to see this thing and to see this thing stop. And so God impressed upon her heart to declare over each patient by name that these seven complications will not occur. And what she did in the presentation was she put up an Excel spreadsheet and she showed us the seven complications. She lined them up and the name of the patients. And before the declaration, so there were dots all around. There were different com- people going through different complications. But after she started declaring the word of the Lord, declaring healing over these people, for a year, there was not a single dot all through that, li- that list. Take that, you know, you got in a pregnancy right now, I speak that over you, that there will be no complications. The word of the Lord. She showed us the lock of her patients and she did it for a year. Not a single one of her patients had any complications. What if there is more to be seen, there's more to be established in that realm you know, of your job, of your work? That comes when you partner with the Holy Spirit, when you allow Him to engage with you in your workplace. Many times you approach the Holy Spirit as he's the church guy. Holy Spirit is a guy that goes to church. I know, man, he, he lives in you, wants to come upon you to impact the world around you. And we quench him when we limit what we think he's able to do. Most closed heavens are between the ears. Making sense? The original Hebrew in this passage, when it talks about quenching, defines it as to stop the flow, extinguish, or put out. To stop the flow could be illustrated by bending a garden hose in half until no water flows from it. Right? You know, you bend the hose, the water doesn't flow from it. Now, when I was in youth ministry under Pastor Daniel's leadership, we had a youth camp in a school once, and we were playing in the mud for a bit, and we thought the most efficient way to bathe was to uh, roll out the fire hose and spray each other with the fire hose. And uh, that uh, alerted the SCDF and they came down to our youth camp. So, yes, we, we did that. And uh, do not ever bathe a fire hose because you, you bruise. You bruise, boy. Uh, you bruise, yeah, you bruise. It's painful. Uh, when, when, we, when we rolled out fire hose and started spraying each other and all, we had to have a couple guys hold on the hose because the pressure was so great. And if you let go of the hose, the hose would just flop over and probably knock a person out and kill the person, right? And so you have to hold it tight, you know. And if the water gets too great, you have to press on it a bit. I think that sometimes we quench the Holy Spirit, we bend the hose in half 
out of fear and mistrust. You quench him out of fear and mistrust because he's unpredictable. Imagine letting a horse run free. You can't predict where the horse is going to go, where the water is going to go. And we often stop the flow and do so out of fear or lack of trust. I've learned over the years that you know, God promises us this in the Bible, that he gives us the peace that surpasses all understanding. Sometimes in order to attain that peace, you have to give up the right to understand. He gives us the peace that surpasses all understanding. Sometimes your understanding or your need to understand is a barrier to you experiencing that peace. How many of you have radically encountered God and were in tears or shaking on the floor? How many of you? Yeah? Cry. Mucus. Christian recreation is best. How many of you, okay, in that state of sheer awesomeness, felt complete peace? Yes? How many of you know that you wouldn't feel that peace if you were fixated on the manifestation? Why am I crying? Why am I crying? I don't feel, feel sad. I don't feel sad. Why am I rolling on the floor? The floor's so dirty. This is germy. How many of you know that instantly the encounter was just poof? <laughs> You're done. <laughs> Sometimes our understanding becomes a barrier to us experiencing the fullness of God. And sometimes our need to understand becomes a barrier for us to experience the fullness of the Holy Spirit. He is God and He will do as He will. There's a psalm that says this, that God is God and He does whatever He pleases. Some people ask me, why does God do that? God is God and He does whatever He pleases. Great verse. I will give it to you someday. I think of Moses' encounter with the burning bush. You know, It says this, I'm going to close soon. Um, Moses, you know, when he walked in through that, that encounter, says this in the Bible that he saw the angel of the Lord as a fire in the midst of a burning bush. And he walked in and saw that. And the Bible accounts for this, that Moses was astonished, he was confused, he marveled. And this is what the Bible says. The Bible said that Moses walked in and he turned aside toward the bush and God spoke. So picture this, the bush was here. He walked in, he saw the bush. He was confused. He was like, what is going on? Why is the bush not consumed? And the Bible says that he turned aside and God spoke. Sometimes in the midst of mystery, uncertainty, not knowing what's going on, it presents itself as an opportunity for you to turn aside, for you to lean in. And in that act, God speaks. I think the best way we practice that which I've just spoken is the speaking of tongues. Now I can't, for the love of me, explain to you all the intricacies, the complexities, the, re the rationale, the process on how to speak in tongues. But I know this, that there is a gift that God desires for all of us to walk in. Paul says that, Paul says this in his, in, in his writings, he says that I pray in tongues more than all of you. The word all of you is not I pray in tongues more than you, more than you, more than you. Paul is suggesting I pray in tongues more than all of you combined. <laughs> and we know Paul is not a boastful man. And so, you know, this is... Right, you read it in the original text. It says, I pray in tongues more than all of you combined. That's a stunning, stunning declaration. After being filled with the Holy Spirit, the disciples began speaking in tongues. I'd like to say this over you, that just because you don't speak in tongues, it doesn't mean that you're not baptized and filled with the Holy Spirit. But God desires for you to walk in this gift. 
is not because we are of a charismatic persuasion. But this gift is something that God desires for you to, to have because it is of benefit to you. The Bible says that when you pray in the Spirit, you build up, you edify your inner man. There's something about tongues that is a great treasure, it's a great privilege that God has given freely to you and me. Am I making sense? You know, when, when I got saved at 17, you know, I remember I went to the church and they were speaking in a different language, tongues. And I was, what is going on? And I had no clue what is this. And I began to ask questions and people were telling me, oh, this is the Holy Spirit, you know, just do, just, you know, do it. No, so there's no, there's no one, one formula on getting filled with the Holy Spirit. But the Bible says this, that when we ask, the Father is not an evil Father. He will give us the gift of His Holy Spirit. I remember I was uh, in worship um, my first year in church and I was standing there and people were, were singing in, in tongues and it was just beautiful. And I began to pray to God and ask Him, I was like, God, I'm not sure if this is real, but God, if this is real, I want it. And it was just a really simple prayer. And I remember I was just singing in worship. And as I began to sing, all of a sudden, my mouth began to be, f- be filled with this strange utterance and I was just like, what is going on? And in a moment, all of a sudden, I started praying in tongues. I've always looked back to that moment. Now, I've been a Christian for 10, 11 years. And I've always looked back to that moment where I found that God was real and that He listens. I prayed a simple prayer. God, if this is real, I want it. Because you know, I want you. And this is what you desire for me to have. Therefore, I pursue it. I know that you know better than I do. Sometimes we have to recognize that He's the Creator. And because He created us, He fashioned us, He designed us, He knows how we ought to function. And the Lord says that this gift is for your benefit. Perhaps we should take His word instead of leaning to our preferences or inclinations or comfort. Am I making sense? What does it mean to be Spirit-filled? It's not measured by the manifestations that is present in our gathering. To be filled with the Spirit means to live lives that honor the Holy Spirit that lives in us and we honor Him when, we show, when He shows up in our gatherings, allowing Him to use us for His glory. Can you stand? Let's have that last passage of Scripture out from Luke chapter 11. You can turn your attention to the screen. I would like to read it. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Oh, that's scary. Or he, if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? Can I get an omelette? No, I'll give you a scorpion. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? You know, I take God at His word. You know, I try my best to do so. The Bible says this, that when two or three are gathered in His name, that He is here with us. I made this suggestion to you earlier that the Holy Spirit does not show up in partiality when He shows up. He is fully here, fully present and willing to meet you. The Bible says this, that with regards to the feeling of the Holy Spirit, that it's not a one-time event, but the Bible admonishes believers to be continually filled with the Holy Spirit. How do you measure fullness? You measure fullness by its overflow. And God wants to overflow in your life with His Holy Spirit.